11, but I think we're just going to do verse 11 all by itself here in a couple weeks, the next time we're back in Colossians. We're just going to look at Colossians 3, 5 to 10. If you're a guest with us today, just know this is uh, what we do every week. We get into God's Word and we walk through it verse by verse. I think this is our like 15th, 16th sermon in the book of Colossians. So we just work through it slowly and meditate on it together and let it sink into our hearts, Lord willing. And so that's what we're going to aim to do with God's help again this morning. Colossians 3, 5 to 10. If you're looking for a title for the sermon, Out with the Old. Out with the Old. I'm going to read for us and then pray and then we'll jump on in. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I'm going to read verse 11, even though we won't be in that preview for next week. Paul writes, Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you, Lord, and thank you, even that we've just been able to read your word and listen to it. God, we thank you because your word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts between joint and marrow. Lord, it exposes the sin that's in our hearts so that we can run to Jesus afresh as our only hope of salvation. And God, I pray that that's what would happen as we look at your word this morning. God, I pray that all of us in some sense this morning would come under deep conviction for sin that's in our lives. Lord, we're not here to feel good about ourselves. We're here to be convicted and to feel great about what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would expose sin in our hearts. Lord, would you give me wisdom, Lord, and and help to proclaim the truth that's in this text rightly that everyone here would cling to Jesus all the more today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a major problem at home right now with my drawers. I've got a big drawer problem because apparently I have a hesitancy to get rid of old clothes. So just a couple of days ago, I was seeking to put some folded laundry into my chest of 
drawers and I was struggling to shove the laundry down into the drawer. And of course, my wife so lovingly reminded me, it's time to get rid of some stuff. And I can guarantee you that I have shirts in my drawers that are probably 10 years old or older that I haven't worn in 10 years or longer. You know, and I, I, every time I come to get a hold of, of these things and get rid of them, I, I begin to think to myself, well, maybe there's going to be some future use for this, you know? Maybe this shirt's going to come back in style someday. You know, I just need to hold on to it a little bit long, longer, and then it'll be cool and trendy again. I'll put it back on, feel good about myself, or I think to myself, well, maybe I'm going to need a shirt that I can wear to get paint on or to do construction projects in. Of course, I've already got like 10 plus options for that. But of course, maybe I just need one more. You never know if you're going to need that extra shirt. Or, or maybe there's some other way that that shirt's going to come in handy that I can't even imagine right now. But it's not something I should get rid of. At least somehow I have a way of convincing myself that I need to hold on to that shirt just a little bit longer. Now, you should all know that I don't consider myself to be a hoarder, okay? I don't consider myself to be one of those people who's going to end up on one of those TLC TV shows who has barns upon barns of stuff that they've collected over the years that they didn't really need, but they're not willing to get rid of. I don't, I don't see myself as being one of those kinds of people, and yet I still struggle with some things to throw them away. Thinking about this even in relation to this little blue stuffed animal bear that still floats around in our house. That little blue bear was my childhood stuffed animal. And there's very few things that I have left from my childhood. And I wouldn't think that I have much of a connection with that bear. I mean, it just gets thrown around. It floats around the house. I see it from time to time here and there. It's not like I've got it framed up on a wall in a special glass case where I just admire my childhood as I look at it. There's nothing like that going on. And yet I was thinking, would I throw that thing away? Probably not. But why? Why do I want to hold on to this little bear? Well, it's because there's something sentimental about it. There's something within my heart that still thinks that I need to hold on to that little bear. Now, there's things like that, I think, for all of us. That we have to just admit that for really no logical reason, we struggle to throw out. But the reality, especially with things like the shirts in my drawer, is that there comes a time when you need to just get rid of the old because the new has come. And in our text this morning, Paul is showing us that such is the case in the Christian life. When we are joined to Christ through faith by his definitive rescue of us out of the domain of darkness and into his beloved kingdom, there are a lot of things from our old life, friends, that just need to go. They just need to get out of our lives. They need to be thrown away. In fact, Paul will even go so far in this text to say, there are things in our life that we need to put to death. And we need to remember that the Holy Spirit has been teaching us through the Apostle Paul as we've been studying Colossians thus far, this great truth, my friends. The Christian life is a union a union or a whole person identification with a death and resurrection reality. Okay, Paul has told us Christ came into the world and he lived and he died and he resurrected to new life to rescue his people out of the dying world that we are still even now living in. 
Now, if our trust is in Jesus as our only hope of salvation, then what we have seen is that we are a part of a new humanity. We're part of a new creation that God is rescuing out of this dead and dying world to live with him and for him forever. But we need to know that our new resurrection life in Christ means that we are also dead to the old and dying things of the world. Listen to what we've studied thus far, Colossians 2, 11 to 15. In him, in Jesus that is, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here's what that is saying, friends. When Jesus died... His body was as if it was being circumcised. There was a death of the old things. You have died with him by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. That's your story if you were in Christ. That's your story if you were a Christian. You were dead in sins and trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Jesus, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul has been saying is there is an old, dead, dying world. All this stuff is going to be put into the grave someday. You're not part of that world anymore if you're in Christ. You've been resurrected. You've been made new. Colossians 2.20 If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. You died to the spiritual forces, the spiritual powers, the demonic forces that are present in our world that tempt you and seek to hold you in bondage by accusing you of your sin. You have died to those because you know now in Christ I've been forgiven of all of my sins. Sin has no power over me. Death has no power over me. I am part of a new creation. So Paul says you died to those elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why do you submit to these ways of thinking that make you think that salvation is in any way dependent upon you? That's what Paul's getting at in that text. It's all Jesus now. He's your life. He's your all. He's your everything. Colossians 3.3, which we just looked at last week. Listen to this. For you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, we have seen that God's work of salvation in a person who trusts in Jesus is a powerful, miraculous work upon the soul where someone who was once dead to the things of God is made alive in Christ. And this isn't just a happy, feel-good sort of experience that you come to church on Sunday mornings and you get your spiritual high from remembering some of these things and then you just go out the doors and you go about your regular life as if nothing has changed for you. No, this resurrection reality that takes place in a person also leads to a death of the old man. Friends, a true Christian is a person who can say, the old me died with Christ. The old me is gone. He is done for. And we're going to look today at a few of the old man characteristics 
that should have been put into the grave with that old man. And yet they have a way of just cropping back up. And so we've got to put them back in the grave, put them in their proper place. Just like all that old clothing in my drawers, friends, some things in the Christian life just have to go. And so as we study this text this morning, we're going to find really just two major items on the list that we need to do away with. Item number one is out with sexual sins. And item number two is out with social sins. So let's look first at that first item, out with sexual sins. Look with me at Colossians 3, verses 5 to 7. Paul writes, put to death, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Okay, now the first critical word that I need to point out to you in these verses is the word therefore. That word therefore that you see right after that put to death, that therefore indicates that Paul wants us when we read this to have all that he has just written in verses 1 to 4 in mind. This is the foundation Paul wants to know this is the foundation of that command, put to death what is earthly in you, verses 1 to 4. And I remind you in verse 3, what I just read, for you have died, Paul says. You have died and your life, so you still have life, it's a new life, is hidden with Christ in God. So this command to put to death what is earthly in us is a call, friends, to enact a spiritual reality that's already true of us. And it's really important that we realize that. We have died to the old world of selfish and sinful ways, and we ought to put to death, therefore, any lingering sin that remains in our lives. This is a call to live according to the truth of what God has objectively done with us or done for us, both in the work of Jesus on the cross and in the work of the Holy Spirit, applying that work of Jesus to our hearts and lives. We have been resurrected. We have been made into a new man with Christ. And that's an important truth to remember, friends, because the Christian gospel is not a message that leaves a person unchanged. You know, opponents of the Christian faith, which we preach, will often accuse our gospel of being too simplistic. They'll say that a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that sort of a gospel, you go about preaching that kind of a thing, people are just going to continue on in their sin because you're not calling them to any sort of effort. That's what they'll say. But that's not what we are saying at all. What we're saying is that God does a work in us that enables us to walk in a new resurrection life that we were unable to walk in before. You see, before Christ resurrected us, we were all hopelessly given over to our sinful desires to the extent that we couldn't fight against them even if we wanted to. And even if we think that we wanted to fight our sin, our want to, if we're really being honest, was ultimately for the wrong reasons. 
It wasn't because we wanted more than anything to glorify God and to bring praise to his name. No, it's because we wanted to praise man. We wanted the approval of man. Those are the reasons that we fight against sin before we come to Christ. We see that my sin is causing some sort of relational hindrance in my life. It's causing some sort of inconvenience. If I could just get over this addiction, this struggle, I would be a better person, a better version of me. That's the wrong motivation for overcoming sin. What happens when you are united to Christ is Christ becomes your all in all. Meaning that your conviction of sin is not based in the social consequences that your sin brings into your life. Your conviction is based in the fact that you realize you sinned against a holy and righteous God. And you come to understand that that God sent his son to die so that I can be fully and completely forgiven What kind of love is that? What kind of God is that? That's the God that I want to worship. That's the God that I want to give my life to. See, we have Jesus revealed to us in this moment when we first believe as our all-sufficient Savior and Lord. And when that happens, we bow our knee to him in worship, and he changes us forever. He makes us into a new creation In that moment when we're made into a new creation, what we find is in the Christian life, we enter a battle that we knew nothing of before. We enter into an all-out war upon our sin. It's a war that we wage because we love King Jesus. We love the king who entered into this broken world to pay the penalty for our sin so that when we trust in his work, we have assurance of salvation. We're in his kingdom. We're adopted as sons. And so now we long with our whole heart to kill all that's within us that is against Jesus and his purposes. It's motivated by a love for Christ. And so, friends, we put sin to death. That is what Christians do. We struggle against our sin. And friend, I hope that that's an encouragement to some of you today. Because one of the evidences that you are in fact spiritually resurrected in Christ is that you love Jesus enough to struggle with your sin. You love Jesus enough that you're going to fight your sin. That's the gospel we preach here. We're not preaching a man-boasting, perfectionistic gospel where you can come here and the preacher's going to give you a five-step process to make your life perfect. No, no, no. We preach the person of Jesus. And yet we still live in a real world. We live in a real world with a real God and a real truth, which tells us that the Christian life is an all-out, lifelong war against sin, against Satan, and against the popular movements of this world. And so here in verse 5, Paul tells us, put to death a list of five sins, and all these five sins are related. We need to kill sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Sexual immorality there is a blanket term for any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It's anything, any sexual activity outside of your activity with your husband or wife. So if you're not married, any sexual activity that you do is sexual immorality. And if you are married and you're participating in any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant with your husband or wife, that's sexual immorality. 
The Greek term there, interestingly enough, is porneia, which you can probably tell is where we get the term pornography from. It's helpful that Paul uses this term for sexual immorality first because it really shows that the Christian assumption is that God created sexuality for the purpose of marriage. And Christians need to fight to keep that truth in our hearts and in our lives and to practice that truth every moment of every day. Anything I do outside of marriage that is sexual is sin against God. And then he goes on and he says impurity. And that word impurity is more of a general term that refers to just uncleanliness. And uncleanliness that is a, a result of, of corruption. And so Paul is really using that word just to modify sexual immorality. Immorality makes you impure. And then he uses the word passion, and that word refers to an affectional longing. And in this context, it's a longing for sexual sin. That's what passion there is. And then he goes on and he says, evil desire. That word desire can be used toward good longings in different places in the Bible, but it can also be used toward evil longings. This, this word for desire is the same word that James uses in James 1, 13 to 15. James writes, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, listen to this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. By the way, side note, there is a movement within so-called Christian circles right now that says as long as you don't act upon the sin, the desire is just fine. You can desire the sexual sin all that you want. You can desire homosexual relationships all that you want. This is arguments being made in these different side B circles is what they would be referred to as. And they're making an argument on the basis of thinking it's only sin if you act on it. These people don't know their Bibles, my friends. Desires are sinful. Even desiring it is to go wrong. And then finally, he uses the word covetousness. And this word refers to a greedy desire for more and more. So the idea is that sexual immorality grows worse as a person gives into this sort of uncontrolled desire for more and more illicit experience. It's like, I just want more. I just, just, just one more click. Just one more look. Just a little bit further. Let's just push the envelope a little bit further and further and further and further. More and more. This is a covetousness towards sexual activity. An insatiable desire to go deeper and deeper into sin because what you were doing before is no longer satisfying. Now it's absolutely vital, I'd say, that we take some time to slow down here. And really consider our lives in light of this call to kill sexual sin. Because I'm just going to tell you, friends, that I am convinced that this is one of the main threats, if not the main threat, to Christians in our day and age. Sexual sin is one of the primary tools that Satan employs to hinder our growth in Christ. And if we do not put it to death, it will devour us. See, as Christians, we believe that God's design in sexual intimacy is an incredible, thrilling, and joyous gift. That, that intimacy in marriage 
between a man and a woman in covenant union with one another until death does them part, that that ought to be sought after and received with thanksgiving to God. But any activity outside of marriage is a perversion of God's design that people are called to put to death in their own lives and to resist even as we live in a culture that wants to draw us into it. Okay, even just a couple of nights ago, Julie and I, having our nice little TV time, sitting there watching a show that we've been watching together, and in the show, they adopted as one of the main kind of side plots the story of this young 18-year-old and 19-year-old man and woman who began to get into an inappropriate relationship with one another. And the young man was living with his grandma, and the young woman was living with her great-aunt, and the grandma and the great aunt were friends with one another in this little small town, magical town. And when the young man and the one, young woman and their activity was discovered, the grandma of the young man decided it's time to get together with everyone in the room and have a meeting. All parties need to be present. It's time to talk this thing out. So the grandma gathers everybody into the room and confessed her concern that this was a sinful activity. She said, this is sin for these people to be living in this sort of immorality with one another. These young people should not be sexually involved with one another. They should stop the things that they're doing together immediately. Now, I'm sure that you can guess in what light the show portrayed this particular grandma's views. Of course, they painted her in a way that would try to make her seem like she's the worst kind of po person possible. They paint her in the worst kind of light. They made her come across as shockingly old-fashioned and judgmental. And so then the much cooler and the much more in on the current trends great aunt steps in to save the day. And the great aunt rebukes her friend of all of her old and antiquated views. And she begins right there in the room to celebrate this young couple who are doing whatever makes them happy. And they should do whatever makes them happy so long as they're being safe as they do it. This is good. This is righteous. This is pure. Go and live however you want sexually as long as you're being cautious in the way that you're doing it, a.k.a. don't get pregnant. Now, sadly... Anyone who views any media these days knows just how normal this has become as the accepted narrative. Am I right? This is what we expect out of our shows these days. But I hope that you know, church, that that's a narrative that all Christians must reject. In fact, let me just encourage you who watch TV to preach to your TV shows. Let me just call you to do a little bit of talking to your TV. I know that may sound a little bit silly, but I actually think that that is a good practice to have. You should never let your guard down and just absorb media without filtering it through Christian truth. So I'm going to tell you that Julie and I sat there as we watched this show and we verbally spoke out the lie that was being told on the television. We sat there and we celebrated the old, antiquated, boring grandma who doesn't have it together. We're like, that woman knows what's going on. Yes, keep after a grandma. Keep saying what's true. Cheer on the characters that the culture wants to demonize if those characters are saying what's true. Because the truth is that that young couple should have been ashamed of their sexual activity outside of marriage. It should have been lovingly called to repentance 
They shouldn't have been validated and celebrated in their sin. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that non-believers are going to live and act in these sorts of ways. But the point here is that such sexual sin should not be tolerated in our own lives. It shouldn't be tolerated in our own imaginations. It shouldn't be tolerated in our attitudes of what we approve or disapprove of in our own lives or in our churches. But, but so much sexual sin is tolerated, friends, because it simply isn't talked about enough. See, th- this is a call from the Apostle Paul for Christians to put sin to death together. Did you know that? He's writing to a church, and he's using plural pronouns. And he's saying, you kill sin together. Put it to death. It's a corporate call. So I just got to ask, are we doing this? Are we doing this as a church? Are we talking about the sorts of sexual sins that we struggle with? Are we linking up arms together, seeking to eradicate that sexual sin from our lives? And I just fear that we're not doing this nearly enough. Okay, and I'd be a fool to not apply this text to the huge problem from which we get the word porneia, pornography. Let me just give you a few stats from a study that was done in 2016, meaning it's probably a lot worse now. In 2016 alone, people watched 4.6 billion hours of explicit pornographic videos on just one website. Friends, that's 524,000 years of video. At age 11, the average child's been exposed to explicit content through the internet. 96% of young adults that were polled are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral in their view toward pornography. This is an important one next. One third of women in a large poll claimed to have viewed pornography at least once per week. 25% of pornography in the United States now is viewed by women. And women viewers are being heavily targeted by the producers of this kind of content. They're trying to take the female interests in mind and are trying to gain new customers. I say that just to say this isn't a male-only problem. I think there's a lot of women that probably get trapped in it because they feel such shame thinking that it is a male-only problem because that's what they've been told. That's a lie. Sex traffickers rely heavily on the profits that they get from selling digital pornography. Pornography objectifies women. It destroys, friends, it destroys their body and their souls. It's profoundly unloving to view pornography. Hundreds and even thousands of women who've come out of the pornography industry have told the sad and destructive stories of the -the behind-the-scenes details. Substance abuse, depression, suicide. These are common things for people who've been involved in that industry. Women who participate in pornography, it's undeniable. They're devoured over time. Those who've come out of the industry, they testify of being convinced that nobody's ever going to truly love them. They're unlovable. These are women who've been beaten, They've been abused. They've been lied to. They've been used, friends, for the sinful appetites of greedy producers and sexual sinners. And these statistics and testimonies should break our hearts as Christians. These are 
statistics that should cause us to weep and to hate that industry. In fact, in light of these reminders, we need to affirm what Paul says next in verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God hates sexual sin because it destroys God's good design for sex. And so his wrath is coming as a result of the reckless assault that the world is making upon his design. And so Christians should hate all sexual sin too. That's the point that Paul's making here, friends. Why would we continue to participate in the works of darkness when we've been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? That is the point that Paul makes, even in the next verse. Verse 7, in these, in these you too once walked. You once walked. Back in your former life, you walked in those things. You were living in those things. And friends, this is the reminder that we all need. If you are a Christian, you don't live in a sphere that's being dominated and controlled by your sinful flesh anymore. You can now walk in Christ by the Spirit. And so you can put to death that old earthly stuff that remains in you. So the call here is to fight. Paul is writing to Christians who are struggling with sexual immorality. So there shouldn't be a single person out there who says, the pastor is saying that things are hopeless for me. No, what I'm telling you is, if you're in Christ, you've been forgiven. You've been washed. You've been made clean. So stop living as if that's not true because it is. You don't belong to that former way of life anymore. So don't participate in Satan's schemes of destruction. Have love in your heart for Christ and for your neighbors that would prevent you from going down that path. We need to fight. And the good news, too, is that God gives us means to fight against sin, friends. He gives us means to fight and put sin to death. Do you know what those means are? You know what those are? I think the problem that many Christians have is we don't know what the means that we're supposed to use are to kill sin. I know I've got a sin problem. I know that I struggle with sexual immorality, but I don't know where to begin to start to beat this thing because I've tried all sorts of techniques and schemes and none of those things are seeming to work. Are you applying the means of grace? See, Paul identifies the root problem in the human heart in idolatry. Isn't that interesting? See, that's what he says at the end of verse 5. The, the problem is that our hearts are not being satisfied in Christ and in his beauty and truth. That's why we start looking for satisfaction in earthly things. It's because we aren't satisfied in the worship of Christ. And so we as Christians kill sin, not by employing a savvy 12-step process, but by addressing the problem of our human hearts, which is that we aren't setting our mind on things above. We're not setting our mind on Jesus enough. Okay, so how do we set our mind on things above in order to put those things that are earthly to death? Friends, you fill your mind with the truth of the word of God. That's what you do. We fill our thoughts with Jesus. We fill our mind not with thoughts of sexual sin, but with thoughts of Christ and his glory. And then, and then we seek our God in prayer. And then we get together in Christian community with other believers who are struggling with the same sorts of sins that we are. And we begin to confess those things. We link arms together with one another and we kill sin together. 
We do this as a unit. We confess those struggles and then we preach Christ to one another. Brother or sister, I understand you're struggling. Get into the light and know that Jesus died for those sins. And you're forgiven of them. We give the truth of Christ to the brother or sister in their time of need. That's how we kill sin. I want to say a specific word here. Because I think we all know that one of the greatest issues that sexual sin can cause is tension within a marriage relationship. So we've got to speak to the reality of what this can do to marriage. And I want to just say so clearly, my friends, if you are married and you're married to another believer who loves Jesus and wants to point you to Jesus, you ought to know that your marriage ought to be one of the main places where you fight sin together. Your marriage is where you Link up arms and you say, I know I married a sinner. Let's kill it together. Let's fight together. I know I'm a sinner. There's nothing that I can hold over and against you. I sin just as much as you do. Let's fight our sin together. Okay, now we know that men are more visionally driven, so men are often going to be the ones who are more prone to struggle in these ways that we've been discussing. But that doesn't mean that men are the only ones who struggle with sexual sin either, my friends. Often women can struggle with romanticizing and ungodly ways of fantasizing about a better life, a better marriage, a better relationship, wishing that you had something that you don't, and becoming bitter about what God has given you. Now, perhaps you don't struggle as an individual in any of these ways here, but maybe your spouse does struggle with sexual sin. Are you keeping Christ so central in your own life that your greatest desire is to see Christ formed in you and to see Christ formed in your spouse. Meaning that if he or she comes and confesses to you and trusts you to open up his or her mouth and to say, I'm struggling in this way. Is your heart so immersed in the love of Jesus and the forgiveness that you've received in Christ that your heart is already ready to say, I forgive you. Let's fight. Let's fight together. Jesus has forgiven you. How could I ever not forgive you? Let's work through this together. Let's work through and preach the gospel to one another as we fight sin. Friends, you ought to see your spouse not as the means of your deepest relational fulfillment. You've got that in Jesus. Jesus is your fulfillment. He's all you need. You ought to see your spouse as a fellow sinner and sufferer. You married a sinner. You are a sinner. And we need to link up arms in the marital relationship, especially to kill off sexual sin. So that means that it is essential for Christians to walk in humility toward one another. Friends, we're all struggling in various ways. Not a person in this room is say, I don't have a mark against me, so I can be the one who condemns everyone here. We are all sinners who need the gospel. We need to be convicted of our sin and we need to run to confess and bring those things into light and trust Jesus has forgiven me. He has forgiven me. And we love each other in the midst of that struggle as we fight. And that leads to our next item, by the way, to do away with. Item two, out with social sins. Out with social sins. Paul goes on from verses eight to 10 to say, but now... But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, 
slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, here Paul focuses on sins that have to do with how we treat one another in Christian community. And he uses a little two-word phrase that is absolutely significant here. But now. But now. We see him contrasting there our old way of life with our new Christian reality. Christians now walk in a new resurrection life. And so by God's resurrection power at work in us, we put away all sins. Okay, that, that's what Paul uses that word. He, he says, all of them go away. This is to say, there's not some sins that you can just kind of be okay with. He wants to make sure that just in case we're going to try to justify any sinful action, because he's only giving a list of 10 total things, he says, put them all away. All of the sins. Everything that you know of and what God says in his word is against him, that dishonors his name, that defames his glory. Put all of that stuff away. Paul doesn't want us to think that there's any sin, my friend, that we can cozy up to. Put them all out. And then he lists another five particular heart struggles as an example of the types of social sins that we need to put out of our lives. Anger, wrath, and malice are the first three. All those are really modifying one another, so we need to take them together. Paul's warning against attitudes towards others that are rooted in an angry heart. Anger and rage are responses of an agitated heart that reacts impulsively in a damaging way toward another person. That's what anger is. That's what malice is. That's what rage is. It's when someone pricks you or provokes you in any sort of a way, and your immediate disposition is to attack and destroy. And such a disposition often results in lashing out with our words, which is how Paul actually goes on to develop his thought here. He goes on to warn against slander, obscene talk, and lying. The truth, friends, is that often an angry heart results in a pouring out of words that we shouldn't have ever let pass through our mouths. Paul's saying that we need to put all these sorts of sins away. We need to deal with our angry hearts that lead us to say things that we shouldn't say. Slanders when we lash out at a person, often behind their back. It's when we are frustrated, and so we go and vent our frustration about that person to somebody else who doesn't need to be involved in the situation with the intent of damaging the person's reputation to others. Because we're mad. We want to destroy. We want to bend someone's thoughts towards another person because we don't like what that person did to us or how that person provoked us or what that person said about us. And then obscene talk that you see there, that's the way that's put in the ESV, Obscene talk refers actually to abusive talk. It it refers to when a person becomes so angry that he or she erupts at that other person and begins to use all sorts of horrific words to do the maximum amount of damage possible. It's when you open up and you say every cuss word in the books that you can use to harm a person's mentality. You go into attack mode. And by the way, it doesn't even just have to be words that we would consider to be cuss words. It's just when you get angry and you feel that anger boiling up in you and you let it spill out with the intent of hurting someone. James says in James 3 that the tongue is like a wildfire. 
It's like a forest fire. It's like a fire that's set ablaze. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a little something about wildfires, having lived in West Texas, where we don't get rain, and we have lots and lots of tall, dead, yellow grass all over the place. And one little spark can light up a whole field in seconds. That's what your tongue's like. And then James goes on to say, it's as if you're pouring out the fires of hell upon a person when you do that. Paul tells us, put that stuff away. Put it away. We need to throw out that sort of talk from our lives. We need to throw out that sort of talk from our communities. We need to banish that sort of talk from our marriages and from our parenting. It pours forth from an angry heart that does not honor God. Words are powerful, my friends. The mantra, sticks or stones, may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is the biggest lie that's ever been told before. Christians need to use words with caution. Listen to the Proverbs giving us wisdom here. Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 10, 14. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Be careful before you speak. Restrain your lips. 10.21, the lips of the righteous, I love this one, they feed many. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Proverbs 10, 31 and 32. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health of the body. Proverbs 25, 11 to 14, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Friends, are your words characterized in these proverbs of wisdom? When you speak, is it like you're just feeding people with truth? Or are you bringing forth wisdom from God's word into the ears of others? Or are your words like a honeycomb bringing the sweetness to the soul and health to the body? It's just reflecting as I read these different descriptions. I want my kids and my wife to be able to say these things about me. Don't you? You know, as my kids grow older, I want them to be able to say from their heart, when my daddy speaks to me, it brings the same sort of joy as when honey hits my lips. I want Julie to live in a reality in our home where she can say, Brendan's words are like precious jewelry. They're valuable. They're treasured. They are like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And I want my friends to agree with that too. When I walk into a room, are people being fed the words of life? Are they being encouraged with the hope of who God is and the good news of the gospel? Or are they being teared down and destroyed? But I don't want to make 
any sort of mistake, or I don't want you to mistake even what I'm saying, because this could sound like something it's not in our modern culture. I'm not saying that words should never be hard to hear, because a wise man uses words to offer reproof and correction when necessary as well. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, friends, our world thinks that kind words are words of affirmation to a person who is realizing their authentic self, whatever their authentic self wants to be. That's what our world thinks are the kind of kind words, the sweetness on the lips. You be you. Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever brings you happiness. Just bring out the authentic version of yourself, and that's what kind of truth you ought to live in, and that's what ought to bring you joy. Those are not the kinds of words of affirmation that we are called to use in the Christian community. Paul says we do not lie to one another in the Christian community. We don't lie. Okay, commentator David Powell is really helpful on this point. Listen to this. He says, the act of lying should not be considered, and he's talking about what Paul's saying in this text, the act of lying should not be considered simply as a verbal act of making a false statement. In biblical material, to lie is to deny the truth as represented by God himself. To Paul, therefore, the act of lying is an active denial of the truth that can only be found in God. Lying is to be equated with idolatry. And as lying is understood as an idolatrous act, lying to one another is to act within a community that denies the truth of God. So we're not saying that the kind of encouragement we're supposed to give is, let me affirm you in your sin. We're not to lie to each other. The kind of encouragement that we ought to have on our lips, friends, is the truth of God. You know, I was sitting in a biblical counseling thing, the thing that we had here at the church this weekend, I just so wish more of y'all could have been there. It was so edifying and encouraging. But in that counseling session, there was moments when we were just working through, how would you deal with this situation of a person's struggle? We did a case study on Friday night. And people just started voicing out verses from all over the Bible. Here's the word of God that I would bring into the situation. I was just like, what a wealth of wisdom. This is what the Christian community is supposed to be like. When someone comes in struggle, we're supposed to know God's word and speak the truth. We don't participate in the lies of the world. We speak truth even when the world would want to make us a liar. And we've already seen as we've been studying through Colossians that Satan, who is the ruler of the domain of darkness, is a liar. That's what the Bible calls him. His primary goal is to get people to believe the lies about the character and nature of God. And Satan wants to believe, above all, that God is not good. And a heart that believes that God is not good, follow this. A heart that believes that God is not good is a heart that will not be satisfied in Christ. And a heart that is not satisfied in Christ is a heart that will seek satisfaction in earthly things. And a heart that seeks satisfaction in earthly things is a heart that craves sexual sin and that erupts in anger towards other people when they are not satisfying our felt needs or desires. Do you see how all that connects? Do you see how all of it connects to you believing the right things about God and loving true things about God? The call is to reject the lie that the old stuff 
that we died to long ago when we came to Christ can ever satisfy the soul's deepest cravings. So, so we're called here to put off the old self with its practices and to put on the new self, which is be, being renewed. How? How's it being renewed? In knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, my friend, so how do you combat lies? You fight lies with the truth. You fight lies with knowledge of Christ through the scriptures. Remember Paul's words back in chapter 1, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so, Paul says, from the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is really what it means to put on the new self, my friends, to put on the new you, to put on the new self, to put on all that Christ has really already put onto you is to live according to the truth rather than to live by the lies of the old world. Paul is contrasting the new self with the old self here. And I really don't think that new self and old self is the best translation. I think that this would be better to translate it directly as new man and old man because I think that it's apparent that Paul has identity in mind here. And here's what I mean by that. Every person born into this world is born with an identification with Adam. And Adam failed and marred the image of God in man. And so every person who's born into this world is born into this old man order. We are a messed up humanity. Before a resurrection, you could say we are in Adam. We're broken. We are in a helpless situation, and we live by lies when we're in that state. When we're in that state, we embrace a vision for the purpose of our lives that is not based on the objective and revealed truth of God and his word. Instead, what we do is we start to create our own purpose and meaning instead of trusting God's truth. That's what people in Adam do. They autonomously reason their way into thinking what the best sort of version of life is going to be for them instead of submitting to the truth of an objective God who's given us an objective word so that we can know who he is and trust him. And so that's why, friends, that's why humanity gets so far away from what God created us to be. But in his resurrection work in our lives, God is creating a new redeemed humanity. And he does that by sending Jesus into the world, who is the eternal image of God. And when Jesus takes on flesh, he becomes the new and the better Adam. He is the true new man. He, he becomes what humans were always meant to be. So, so you think of the man Jesus, and there you have the imprint of all that God created us to be as humans in the world. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus in his divine nature. God didn't create us to be divine the way that Jesus is divine. I'm talking about Jesus in his human nature. He took on human flesh. He was a man, my friends, who never lusted after a woman. Not once. Never. He treated women with dignity and respect. He honored women. He always treated them in truth. He treated them generously. He's a man who never became unrighteously anger, who, angry. He never uttered an angry word. 
to anyone. Everything that Jesus said was good. Everything that he said was for the sake of building up. And that includes his words of rebuke, by the way, to those who were in the wrong. He preached the truth. He preached truth to the point that even the Jews wanted to crucify him, and they did. Jesus preached himself. He preached himself so that we could know who he is and believe in him for our salvation. And so when Paul says that we have to put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, what he's saying is that the resurrection we receive in Jesus means that we begin to live in truth according to the image of our creator. And our creator is who? Jesus. Colossians 1. 15 to 17. This is Paul's words about Jesus, who is the new man. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Don't you see, church, the purpose of Christ's work in the world is to restore a new humanity into the image of God that we were made to originally reflect. And so now Jesus Christ serves as the supreme example of what man was meant to be. And he is conforming us by his own power through the resurrection life that he provides to us through his own life, death, and resurrection to be conformed into his image. This is an incredible truth. And in Christ, that is your purpose in life. You exist to image Jesus. You exist to bring glory to God as you are renewed in a way that makes you truly human. The world is not truly human. They are a dilapidated, marred, messed up version of what mankind was meant to be. Do you know who's supposed to be the new humanity who rightly reflects the kind of love and justice and care and generosity and graciousness and all the things that are present in our God? That's supposed to be the church. That's supposed to be the church. You see, in Jesus, the morn of a new creation has dawned. And throughout our lives, we ought to pray that that light would become ever increasingly bright and brilliant in us. I think Charles Wesley probably puts it most beautifully in closing here. Burst we then the bands of death, raised by his all-quickening breath. Long we to be loosed from earth, struggling into the second birth. Spent at length is nature's night. Christ attends to give us light. Christ attends himself to give. God, we now may see and live. Though the outward man decay, formed within us day by day, still the inner man we view, Christ creating all things new. Let me pray. Father, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would bring about the furtherance of this new creation work in us. Lord, you have already done all that is required for us to be made fully and completely new on the last day. We are 
growing in righteousness even now only because we are in Christ and receive his power to walk in a new life. And so I pray, Lord, that any Christian struggling with sin, struggling with unconfessed sin, Lord, I just pray that your word this morning would bring all this stuff to the surface and that we would just shine the light of your word on it and refuse to live as an old man. We're not the old man anymore. We're a new man. We're in Christ. So I do pray that our lives would be conformed into his image. Lord, make us more like Jesus for your glory. Not for us, but to your name, we pray, would be the glory. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who's with us this morning who has never, at least not yet to this point, become a new man, who knows nothing of this reality, but who knows that they have some messed up stuff in their life, oh God, I pray that you would just magnify the true Christ to them, that they would cling to him as their only hope of salvation, that you would resurrect them from the grave, and that they would be made new. Would you do this for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.